Welcome to the Healthy Podcast presented by Melrose Wakefield Healthcare. My name is Rob Branya, and I am pleased to welcome today's guests to Studio B at Wakefield Community Access Television. Dr. Mina Safane is Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Tufts University School of Medicine and an attending neurosurgeon at both Tufts Medical Center and Melrose Wakefield Hospital. And Dr. Marie Raguski is also an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Tufts University School of Medicine and also an attending neurosurgeon at both Tufts Medical Center and Melrose Wakefield Hospital. Thank you both for being here and welcome to the Healthy Podcast. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Today, we want to focus um, on a few different things, uh, issues, diagnoses that neurosurgeons treat. Um, but I wanted to start with one of the most common issues and types of pain uh, that you treat, back pain, and in particular, sciatica. Now, I always like to start these conversations with the numbers. As many as 40% of people will get sciatica during their lifetime, and it becomes more frequent as we age. Dr. Safane, let's start with the basics. What exactly is sciatica? Who gets it and why? Yeah, so, you know, sciatica is a, a lay term for shooting leg pain. Um, and commonly, actually, sciatica does not come from the sciatic nerve itself. That's actually a rare cause of sciatica where things like benign tumors can grow or impingement of the actual sciatic nerve. Most sciatica, as we discuss, is really coming from the back and the nerves that are exiting the back uh, and then coalescing or joining to become the sciatic nerve. And so most sciatica that people describe as shooting leg pain is really a back issue or a low back issue. So um, it's actually a, a misnomer that it's really coming from the sciatic nerve, but quite common. Um, and like you said, uh, a, a superbly common, everyone knows someone who's had sciatica. What are some of the risk factors? Is this something that people have in their genes that's passed on? Or you know, how, how do people end up with an issue? Yeah, so um, there are very rare causes of genetic causes of back pain that are associated with sciatica. But the most really common risk factor is life. That's what I usually tell people. So it's a degenerative condition. And um, as we go through age, it's probably most common in patients 30s to their 50s, but can occur into late life as well. And it's basically a degenerative process of uh, uh, tightness around the nerves in the back, be it uh, from um, uh, bone spurs or disc herniations or slip vertebrae uh, that really impinge on the nerve or push on the nerve. And that causes kind of the shooting leg pain. Uh, so uh, not a huge ge uh, genetic background to it, really uh, more uh, associated uh, with uh, degenerative processes, basically aging and wear and tear on the back. Okay. And Dr. Raguski, um, what's the size of this issue locally? I mean, how many people do you see and, and does it go beyond sciatica? Are there other types of back pains and how many people uh, are suffering with it? So sciatica and low back pain in general are very large issues. Um, it's one of the most common reasons that I see a patient in clinic and one of the most common reasons to see a neurosurgeon or a pain management doctor. Um, in the U.S., about 1.5% of all office visits to a doctor are for low back pain with or without sciatica. Um, up to 84% of adults will have low back pain at some point in their life, and really 10% of people at any given time do have low back pain. 
Some of those people will have sciatica. Some will have really just low back pain. But this really is a really big issue that, that we address. And I would imagine, just from people who I know who end up with back pain, does it take a while for people to actually figure out that this is something that I should have looked at and treated? I, I assume that you get people who are sort of late stage, you know, by the time they, that they decide to reach out to you folks. Um, what I would say is that it really varies by the person. A lot of people who have sciatica, especially if they've known someone who's had it, um, they try to manage it at home the best they can with um, anti-inflammatory medications, um, Tylenol. Um, but really, if it's very severe, uh, most people do present to their primary care doctor relatively early because the pain is is, is pretty severe. Okay. And I would say there's kind of um, things that are red flag signs as well that both of us kind of always instruct patients and um, uh, primary care doctors about. Things like a neurologic weakness, meaning like the leg is not moving correctly, it's numb. Um, things that are serious like night sweats or fevers that can be associated with an infection. Things that can be associated with a tumor, so weight loss, uh, other pains in the rest of the body. Um, so those things we tell patients like, look, this is not the benign case, wouldn't you agree, yes. uh, about uh, uh, low back pain, uh, but those really should be seen more urgently. Definitely. And as you talk about seeing things urgently, um, we not only here at Melrose Wakefield Healthcare, but across the country have seen um, some apprehension from patients in coming into medical facilities based on, you know, fears about the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, back pain is not something that you should not you know, be taking seriously. Um, what would you say to patients who maybe under normal circumstances would have come right in, but they may be holding off? So I certainly understand the apprehension that everyone has to come in. Um, you know, people read the, the news reports and, and they're scared and that's definitely understandable. Um, but certainly there are risks to uh, waiting to evaluate a problem like this because there can be sometimes a, a serious uh, problem underlying it. And in addition, we really do everything in the hospital and our offices to make things uh, as safe as possible for patients, um, like minimizing time in a waiting room, um, really having people wait outside of the hospital before they come in, disinfecting uh, very frequently, um, obviously hand washing, which is always something that we've done, um, and universal mask wearing and, and symptom screening um, really of everyone that comes into the hospital. Um, I would say that overall the risk of contracting uh, the coronavirus in the hospital is certainly no higher than risking it, uh, than contracting it at a grocery store, for example. Um, and certainly I think when you're having a lot of pain, when it's impacting your quality of life, I think coming in and being seen and um, at least finding if there's a way to make you feel better is important. And I think Dr. Raguski's mentioned it perfectly. I think uh, really the hospital, both at Melrose Wakefield and Tufts Medical Center, have really uh, pushed the envelope in keeping it as a safe environment. And so, um, you know, we see cleaning teams nonstop from the administration staff. People are being checked in at the front desk. They're being screened for symptoms. I would say uh, Melrose is as safe a place that you could be um, and get care. Um, uh, uh, and so I would urge patients not to wait. I, I, I You know, for things, you know, that are urgent and you would see a doctor normally, just go see your doctor. Your doctor is doing the right thing to keep the area safe and so is the hospital staff and administration. 
So let's talk about treatments. Uh, what are some of the common options that are available to people suffering with back pain and sciatica? So for sciatica in particular, I think the any discussion about treatments needs to be uh, had in the context of how what normally happens with sciatica without treatment. Um, when sciatica is caused from a disc herniation in the low back, the vast majority of patients get better on their own over about eight weeks or so. Um, really, the um, that disc herniation either gets resorbed by the body and becomes smaller, or the inflammation of the nerve root gets better. So you really want to start with really the most minimally invasive treatments possible because you really want to avoid any kind of um, you know surgery um, unless you absolutely need it for those red flag symptoms that um, Dr. Svane mentioned earlier. Um, so usually the kind of mainstays initially are um, you know, kind of conservative treatments, um, a, a, steroid, a short steroid trial to release some of that inflammation, um, physical therapy, um, giving it time, and occasionally um, uh, seeing a pain management doctor to consider injections. Um, in addition, anti-inflammatory medications are really important and they, they can help quite a bit. Um, if after about eight weeks go by, or if the pain is so severe that it's, um, you know, really preventing you from walking, preventing you from working, surgery is an option when there is compression of a nerve. Um, and that's a surgery that can be done very safely. Um, but we do reserve it for, for people who absolutely need it after, um, after continuing to have pain despite those other treatments. Yeah, and then I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, I wouldn't add much different that, you know, both of us are actually quite conservative surgeons. And I think patients a lot of time feel like they're, they're going to see a neurosurgeon. They're super afraid of uh, the first thing out of their mouth is going to be surgery. I, I would say eight times out of 10, the first thing out of my mouth is not surgery. And so seeing a surgeon doesn't imply that you have to have surgery. So I, I tell patients that really, um, uh, you know, the reason you're seeing a surgeon is because we understand the anatomy, we understand the disease process, we understand uh, how to fix this because we operate on it almost every day. And so um, we have the breadth of knowledge to say, look, let's give this some time, let's do a little bit of PT, let's do some injections. Um, this is probably going to get better without surgery. And look, when you do need surgery, we do it in a pretty minimally invasive way. Um, a lot of these are done in uh, kind of uh, uh, small, either outpatient or, you know, overnight surgery. Patients do quite well. And this is not the surgery that your parents or grandparents heard about, you know, uh, in the 1960s and 70s where people were in the hospital for days on end and lost blood. So if you need to get to that point, I also tell patients, like, don't be scared about surgery. We'll tell you if it's the right thing. We'll give you recommendations. And we're usually very honest and upfront with people. So that's great. And you mentioned that this is not, you know, the back surgery from your grandparents' era. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the advancements made uh, in surgery and some of the work that you're doing? Yeah. So I think, you know, for, you know, patients who are having these type of spinal surgeries in, you know, the mid-1900s, mid 1960s, 1970s, and 80s, everything was done in what's called an open fashion. You'd make a big skin incision. You'd, ref, you know, move the muscles off the entire spine. Uh, really, it was associated with lots of blood loss. Patients were in the hospital for four and five days, um, and the recovery wasn't great. So, you know, the old adage of never kind of have spine surgery kind of has been in the kind of lay public. And currently at Melrose Wakefield, you know, we do things in quite a minimally invasive way. So I would say, you know, 
uh, 50 to maybe 75% of the surgeries I do at Melrose Wakefield are small, less than a couple of inch incisions. Patients either go home the same day or the next morning. Um, their symptoms are almost all relieved. We don't have huge blood loss and we actually track this. So, you know, we um, monitor all our patients. They go into a database. We compare ourselves against surgeons throughout the rest of the country and the region. And overall, our outcomes um, are quite good and uh, uh, uh our blood loss and length of stay are quite low. Uh, so I would say the reason that things have advanced that way is we use instruments that allow us to do the same surgery with smaller incisions and smaller dissection. We use things like a microscope and micro instruments. We use advanced lighting and imaging. We use things like endoscopes um, uh, uh, and navigation to help with um, uh, minimally invasive. And uh, Dr. Raguski is in the same kind of sort of fashion. She all her surgeries are kind of minimally invasive, and I don't know if you would add anything to that. No, I agree. I think that um, taking advantage of the um, advancement of technology of you know optics, our microscopes are really um, state of the line. We use uh, navigation when when needed, um, and taking advantage of a lot of the advancements in minimally invasive surgery, like not disrupting um, muscles, really going through natural tissue planes and moving muscles aside rather than um, injuring the muscle itself. Um, I think that that really translates to better outcomes compared to where we were, um, you know, decades ago. Um, and I think kind of the most important thing is really the advancements that we've made in when you should operate. Um, I think that, you know, decades ago, um, people really were kind of using a kind of, you know, catch-all net as far as who to offer surgery to. And we've learned much more about who does well with surgery who doesn't do well with surgery, and really offering surgery to um, to the people that we think are going to get better. Um, I think really that's one of the biggest advancements that's happened in the last few decades. Back pain is one focus of your work as neurosurgeons, but let's talk about some of the other health issues that you treat. So when we think about neurosurgery, really, um, it's a specialty that covers um, the brain, the spine, and the nerves. Um, I've heard Dr. Spain say very often, if there's a nerve in that part of the body, we deal with it. Um, so really, we um, treat every neurosurgical condition um, from low back pain, degenerative disc disease, um, uh, thoracic um, problems, cervical uh, problems in the, in the neck, uh, things like myelopathy or spinal cord dysfunction, um, as well as really every type of tumor um, and uh, you know, other conditions of the, of the brain and spine. Yeah. No, I think um, uh, we really take care of a lot. I mean, we see... Uh, really anything that's a structural lesion. And what I mean by that, a mass, you know, something that's pushing on something that can be something benign, like a disc herniation it can be something malignant, like a brain tumor or a spine tumor or a benign, you know, a brain tumor or spine tumor. You know, my fellowship training is in uh, uh, taking out tumors of the pituitary gland, um, which is at the base of the skull, using a minimally invasive technique with an endoscope. So what that means is a camera going in through the nose, no skin incision on the head, and basically removing a tumor from the base of the skull um, uh, using this camera with very small instruments. Uh, and so, you know, everything in our practice, both of our practices actually is quite focused on Achieving the appropriate result for the patient, doing the exact same surgery, getting the same outcome, but in a minimally invasive fashion. And I think that's better for patients and for the practitioner. It's a little bit harder work on our standpoint, but that's why we train to do this so that we can give patients the best option um, 
uh, with these minimally invasive techniques. I mean, Dr. Raguski has a, you know, a distinct fellowship training uh, uh, at a very, uh, you know, large uh, cancer center at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, where she's really specialized in being able to take care of um, uh, brain and spine tumors uh, 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 in uh, uh, straightforward techniques with the latest technology and latest medications. And so uh, did you want to talk about that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, why you got that training and why, why you're interested in seeing those patients? Um, well, one of the things that I, I found when I was in, in training was that I really um, felt for the people who were coming in um, with new diagnoses or follow-up um, of a diagnosis of brain or spine cancer. Um, I think that's a um, situation that none of us want to be in, and it made me really feel for the, um, you know, kind of what they were dealing with and what their families were dealing with. Um, and I wanted to get additional training so I could really offer um, these patients and their families um, really kind of the best techniques out there. Um, and I, I think that I got that from fellowship, and I'm um, really happy to be able to bring that to the community and to Boston. The neurosurgery program at Melrose Wakefield Hospital is certainly not something that is seen at many community hospitals across the country. This is a program that is part of our partnership with Tufts Medical Center, where you are able to see, treat, and perform many of your surgeries right here in the communities where people live, saving them many trips in and out of Boston, uh, parking fees, extended time off from work, etc. cetera. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that program and what that has meant for you and for your patients? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be pr pretty open and frank. I think when um, that was one of my passions when I took this job, um, you know, I um, I got approached about starting um, a community-based practice at Melrose Wakefield. I trained uh, for most of my training at Tufts, and I thought it was a great idea. And I think um, you mentioned a couple points that are awesome. Yeah, most community hospitals don't do this. I think it's a real, um, real benefit to the community here at Melrose that uh, we have uh, neurosurgeons who, you know, often patients will tell me, I want to see a Boston neurosurgeon. Well, guess what? I am the Boston neurosurgeon and I'm right here in your community. And so is Dr. Raguski. And I think, um, I think, you know, we're bringing tertiary level care and quaternary level care um, to the community. And basically, um, we're able to do the majority of our surgeries um, um, in a very uh, elegant and nice uh, fashion at Melrose. We have uh, the same equipment that we have downtown, including our microscopes and our surgical instruments. Our surgical techs are trained to uh, be of the highest standard and help us in surgery. And we have surgical assistants who can help us at a quite high level. And so um, I would say really um, the difference is you don't have to drive into Boston, which for most patients is a plus. So, and even when you do have to drive into Boston for a more major operation or something that uh, uh, needs advanced level care, I can see you in follow up uh, uh, in the community. Uh, and so forth. And so it saves patients the um, uh, inconvenience of it, but without losing the quality. I think that's really important. It's that you're getting the identical quality at a different site. Um, I think it's a huge benefit to the community and the community has responded. You know, our practice has, has grown uh, uh, quite uh, uh, steadily and I think uh, it will continue to grow. And so um, I think that's been uh, a great thing. I think what I would also add is that doctors are very good at telling you what you should do medically and giving you a medical recommendation. And they sometimes aren't as good at supporting 
um, patients kind of through their, you know, their surgery and their treatment. I think often we forget that um, behind every patient, there's a person and their family. And when you take someone, you bring them to Boston, admit them to the hospital there for, for a while, family can't come and see them as well. People have to take off full days of work. Um, that's really, you know, a struggle that we often don't see as physicians. And I think doing that, uh, your surgery or seeing you, taking care of you in the community allows that support uh, network to be there for you. Um, and I think that's really a big part of outcomes and of how patients do that we often forget about as physicians. Um, that's important that we sh really shouldn't forget about that. That's great. Um, so I'd like to wrap up. Um, but before we do that, I just want to throw it back out to both of you. Is there anything else in particular that you'd like to mention? No, I think we've hit on, a, a, you know, a lot of topics. I think, you know, uh, we built the neurosurgery program here to now include uh, two full-time neurosurgeons and two physician assistants and a whole office staff and surgical techs and nurses who help us tremendously. And I think the community really, you know, we, we would throw it back out to the community and say, Thanks for having us in this community and thanks for kind of allowing us uh, uh, to be here to kind of help you uh, get care. I would just mention that we're here for you even during this uh, pandemic that we're going through. Um, and uh, uh, if you have any question that kind of deals with uh, uh, a brain or spine issue or other nerve issue, there's uh, um, uh, physicians in your community who are happy to take care of it and take care of it at a very high level. Yes, I agree. Okay. Okay, great. And for most of the work that you do, is that via referral or can people reach out to you directly or should they talk to their PCP? I, I, I would say there's, there's a couple different routes. I think, you know, you should always get the guidance of your PCP before being sent to a specialist. Most uh, referrals into our office come in uh, uh, through our uh, primary care doctors. But if there's a condition that you know needs a neurosurgeon or you're seeking a second opinion, we're all always happy to see patients. So you can always call our, our office as well and they can uh, direct you to uh, uh, kind of the appropriate pathway uh, uh, for uh, seeing us. Great. Doctors Mina Safain and Marie Raguski both assistant professors at, of neurosurgery at Tufts University School of Medicine and attending neurosurgeons at Tufts Medical Center and Melrose Wakefield Hospital. Thank you for being here. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast or have feedback for us or want to suggest future topics, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or drop us a note at community at melrosewakefield.org. The Healthy Podcast is co-produced by Melrose Wakefield Healthcare and our good friends at Wakefield Community Access Television. For more information, listings of community events and lectures, or to find a doctor, visit melrosewakefield.org. All content heard on The Healthy Podcast was created for informational purposes only. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or qualified provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.